You've heard the sayings, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think that's true of uh, the sermon that I'm going to preach today. We're preaching on a uh, subject found in Romans chapter 1. You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. A subject that seems to be very relevant in our day, but uh, it was also relevant about 2,000 years ago in Paul's day. And so sometimes new things aren't so new. And uh, we're going to talk about a specific type of uh, sin, and, and uh, it's a challenge for me to preach on uh, different passages. This one is certainly a challenge for a couple of respects. Number one, it's a, it's, the subject is, a, is an area in which uh, you know, some people might say it's not suitable for small children, and so I have to be careful uh, with how I frame things, how I word things. And, uh, uh, but the, the other aspect of it is that uh, this sermon today deals with a, uh, a spiritual issue that does not directly affect me. I'm not tempted in this way. I've certainly got my own temptations. Um, but the challenge is that sometimes preachers, when they preach on an issue that directly affects them, they'll go easy on it. And so let's say, you know, if I was uh, tempted by gambling, if I really, you know, that was really a, a core temptation of mine, and I happen to preach on gambling, well, we need to show a lot of mercy to those poor gamblers, you know. And so the preacher go real easy on that. But if it's on something that uh, doesn't really affect him, you know, put the hammer down. You know, those dirty sinners, those rotten people. And uh, that's just not fair, you know, to, to, be, to be honest. It's just not fair to do that. So I hope that you'll see that these issues that we deal with today that are mentioned in this passage, uh, that I'm trying to, I'm striving, doing my best to be faithful to the spirit and the text of God's word. And that's that's really what I'm called to do, no matter what the subject is. We're in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. And we're in a series called Romans, Mercy to All. And I would ask that if you found the passage in your Bible, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. And I'll read aloud from the New American Standard Bible. Scripture says, Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we study your word today, that you give us insight and understanding how we can be faithful to you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this passage, in Romans chapter 1 overall, we, we learned a couple of things. Number one, if you went back to verses 16 and 17, you discover that that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it reveals something about God. It reveals His righteousness, that God is holy, that God is righteous. It reveals to us that we can uh, be declared righteous by God if we have faith in Jesus. So you don't gain God's favor by doing a whole bunch of good things or being real religious or anything like that. And uh, instead, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... God declares you to be not guilty. He declares you to be innocent. He declares you to be right with Him. And so the good news of Jesus Christ declares this, 
It reveals this. The good news of Jesus Christ also reveals God's wrath against sin. God has wrath against the ungodliness, the unrighteousness that uh, we do. And so in this context of the exposition of God's wrath, we learn a few things about what God's wrath is. We learn a few things about what we've done. And we have a tendency as people, as sinners, we have a tendency to reject God's good ideas and replace them with our own bad ideas. And that's what we see in Romans 1. There is what my translation calls an exchange. Other translations call it a change or whatever. But it's a trade-off. We're trading away God's perfect plan for our own bad plan, an imperfect plan. And so, as you might expect, there are consequences when we discard God's ways and replace them with our own. And if we take the time to understand these bad exchanges that, that we have a tendency to make, then we can avoid the consequences. The very first bad exchange that's made, that's mentioned in Romans 1, is found in verse 23, where we replace the perfect glory of the Creator with the lesser glory of His fallen creation. And so in the verses prior to the ones we just read, we learned that God created everything, and everything that God created shows us that He exists. And it should cause in us a response to Him that says, Thank you, God, for making me. I give honor to you. But instead of giving God honor, instead of showing thanks to God or giving thanks to God and glorifying Him, people start to glorify creation. People glorify animals. People glorify the earth itself. People glorify man-made products. People glorify man-made experiences. And most of all, people glorify themselves. We lift up ourselves. And so uh, we, we put ourselves in the place of God. And let me ask it this way. What's the driving force in your life? I mean, what do you live for? Money? Acceptance from others? Your family? Whatever it is that you live for, they're not to take the place of God. These things that I just mentioned, they're, they're not necessarily bad things. Okay? But they're not to take the place of God. Only God is God. Now, because people exchange the Creator's perfect and unchangeable glory for the imperfect and the fallen and the fading glory of some part of creation, then here's what happens in verse 24. It says that God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Did you catch that? Verse 23, people exchange God's glory for created things. Therefore, verse 24, God gives them over to impurity. God gives them over to uncleanness. You see, here's a pattern we're going to find out in Romans chapter 1. Every time that we exchange God's intended order of things for our own bad ideas, God gives us over to the natural result of our decision. He lets us have our way. 
That's the wrath of God. Some people think the wrath of God means that God is sitting in heaven. He's waiting, just waiting for us to mess up, for us to do something wrong. And when we finally mess up, when we finally do something wrong, he attacks us. They think that when we sin, God intervenes to twist the knife, to get us a little bit. That's not it at all. That's not what, that's not what Paul teaches, not what the Bible says. God's wrath against our sin does not mean that he intervenes in our lives. God's wrath against our sin occurs when he does not intervene. When God backs off, he says, okay, have it your way. That's the wrath of God. One theologian put it this way. God ceases to hold the boat as it is dragged by the current of the river. And he lets us go down the river of our own desires. So, the consequence of desiring things, whatever those things are, to the point that we put those things above God, is that God says, okay, and he gives us over to our desires. God gives us what we want. You want wealth more than anything else in life? God says, okay, have it your way. You want selfishness? You desire selfishness and to have your own way more than God? God says, okay, have it. You desire sex and want it more than God? God says, okay, have it your way. Whatever it is you desire more than God, God will give you what you want. Whatever it is that you put in place of God, God will give you the freedom to have it your way. However, here's something else that he will do. He will corral you up in your sin. Like an animal in a pen, he will corral you in your sin. In other words, you have the freedom to do anything you want inside that corral of your sin. Why does God do that? Why does God restrict us? Why does he put us in this corral? Because if God were to put no restrictions on you at all, you wouldn't last very long. The result would be tragic. And so what God does, he corrals you in your sin, and he allows you to change the analogy. He allows you to marinate in it. He lets you feel the full effect of your choices so that perhaps you might realize that your choices end in death. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so the wrath of God, which is allowing you to experience life your way, it should reveal to you that there's a better way to repent, to turn away from your unbelief and trust in Jesus Christ and worship Him alone. And so, just as a recap, here's what happens. Big picture. You desire something more than you desire God. God responds, have it your way. And He gives you over to your desires. He lets your sin run its course. Verse 24 concludes by saying that God does this to sinners so that their bodies 
might be dishonored among them. What does this mean? So that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Listen. When God lets your sin run its course, the result is always impurity. Your life becomes unclean. It even affects your body. See, pay attention. Because you're made in the image of God. Think about what an honor that is. Nothing else in all of creation and all of the universe is made in the image of God except you, you and me. We're made in the image of God. That's an incredible honor. Nothing else is made in God's image. That means that your body, this body that God gave you, your body is sacred. It is meant to be a temple where the Spirit of God dwells. But when you desire something else, when you desire pride or greed or sex or whatever it is, so much that it takes the place of God, what do you do? You use your own body to pursue it. We're supposed to devote our body to God. And instead, we start devoting our body to pursue things to replace God. And when you do that, when you take this sacred gift of God that is your body, and you pursue the things that you want to replace God, do you really think that that decision will not have consequences, even consequences that will affect your body? You see, God does not intervene in order to zap your body if you do something bad. That's not it at all. God simply steps back. He lets sin run its course, and your sin creates its own penalty. Even in the same body that was used to pursue the sin. That's what the end of verse 24 means. Verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the second exchange. The second exchange is trading God's truth for a lie. So creation now is worshipped instead of the Creator. Anytime some part of creation is put in the place of God, it's what the Bible calls the worship of idols. And idol worship does not always mean that there's a little statue and you literally bow down to it and you think that there's something magical about that statue. Or you think that there's some spiritual dynamic or God or spirit or something like that behind that statue and you worship it and pray to it. Idol worship isn't always like that. It can be. But it's not always like that. Sometimes idol worship simply means you diminish the importance of God in your life and you elevate something else to that position. And so back in verse 23, God's glory was exchanged. Now, God's truth is exchanged. And every time, you'll find in Romans chapter 1, every time we exchange something that God intended for our good and for His glory, every time we exchange it for some one of our own ideas, there's a giving over. Verse 23, again, it says that we exchange God's glory. So God, what did He do? He gave us over to impurity. Verse 25, we exchange God's truth. So He gave us over to degrading passions. In verse 26, it says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. 
Idolatry, the worship of something other than God, results in corruption. Degrading passions, corrupting your own nature. You see, when you worship something other than God, those passions begin to drive your life. They begin to degrade you. They begin to corrupt you. They begin to lessen you. They begin to diminish you. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to turn in your Bibles, just in your mind. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. And you'll discover that by the time God's creation was complete, by the end of that creation week, day seven of that creation week, God had established an order to all things. You go back and you look at that. Everything's very orderly. The waters were in their place. The greater and the lesser lights were in the sky. The vegetation was abundant. The animals were each made according to their own kind. Humans were given authority as God's representatives to reign over all of the earth, to subdue it, to use it, to bring God glory through it. And humans were made male and female. And they were given the, given the task of filling the earth with more humans. God made us male and female because the only way to fill the earth with more humans was through the mutual enjoyment of one another's company. This is God's established order from the beginning. But again, people have a tendency to replace God's good order of things with their own bad ideas. And so when we throw aside God's established order so that we can have it our own way, there will be consequences. An obvious example of the reversing of God's intended order of things is homosexual behavior, whether it's male or female. Verses 26 and 27 continue. It says, For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts. Listen, I don't have time today to explain everything that Scripture says about homosexuality, but I'll make a few points here. First, these verses condemn homosexual behavior. Some people don't like that, especially in our day. Some people might try to explain it away by saying, well, Paul was really against a particular act. Or they might say, well, there was some ancient Roman law or some ancient custom to which Paul was reacting. But that's simply not the case. There's no getting around this. Scripture says that homosexual behavior is sin. And the reason behind Paul's statement is theological, it's not cultural. And so these verses condemn homosexual behavior. Secondly, please notice that Paul does not speak about inclinations. He does not speak about temptations in this chapter. He does not speak about attitudes. He does not speak about genetic predispositions toward homosexuality. What he condemns is the act. The act itself. And so to me, it doesn't matter if someone says, well, hey, I was born that way. That's fine. It doesn't matter. That act, the act itself, is still against God's created order. As a 
point. I was born heterosexual. I have certain inclinations, temptations, attitudes, and genetic predispositions toward heterosexuality. Scripture condemns certain heterosexual acts, especially those outside of marriage. Which, by the way, marriage is defined as a lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. God established it in Genesis chapter 2 to be that way. So it matters not what someone's inclinations or temptations are. Paul condemns the act. Third, what sets homosexuality apart in this passage, in other words, the reason that Paul specifically mentions homosexuality and not other sins in this passage is not because homosexuality is more immoral than other sins. If you read these verses carefully, you'll see that Paul does not use moral slash immoral language here. He's not talking about morality here. Homosexual behavior is immoral. So are a whole bunch of heterosexual acts. So is murder. So a whole bunch of things are immoral. That's not the point here. The language that Paul uses in Romans 1 is honor-shame language. Some things are shameful in the fact that they reverse the order in which God created them to be. People in our society today are very quick to emphasize that homosexual couples might care for one another, they might be in, in some type of monogamous relationship, and they ask us, how is it, how is a committed homosexual relationship immoral when it's compared to an uncommitted heterosexual relationship? Listen, it is not about degrees of immorality here. It's about God's established order. The point is that homosexuality is not natural. It is the exchange of natural sexuality for unnatural sexuality. To state it differently, homosexual acts are a way in which humans refuse to acknowledge the order established by our Creator. That is the point here. Next, there is nothing in Romans chapter 1 that says that those who engage in homosexual behavior are somehow beyond God's reach, grace, or love. Jesus died for sinners. All sinners. All of us are in the same situation. Lost in sin without Christ. And we all need the same Savior. Our Savior is able to save any person and change any person's life. We should reject the theology of people like those at Westboro Baptist Church, who I understand believe that the people who commit heterosexual acts are degenerates who are beyond God's grace. That's the theology behind their actions. But that's just bad theology. Scripture indicates that if any person repents of their unbelief and trusts the Lord Jesus for salvation, God will forgive that person 
He'll give eternal life to that person. And the Holy Spirit will come into that person's life and begin to change him or her into the likeness of Christ. Finally, we know that God's Word does not change because God does not change. And we stand with Him and His Word. Without question, with, without regard to any penalty society or the government might ever want to impose upon us. It doesn't matter. We usually do a very decent job of studying and interpreting and applying God's Word. But as Bible-believing Christians, in my opinion, if there's one lesson we should learn, it's this. We need to do a better job at studying and interpreting and applying the lessons of our society. We need to study our society just like we study God's Word. You see, society's values change from time to time. I'm not saying that we adopt them. We don't adopt society's changing values necessarily. We're supposed to be light in the darkness. We're supposed to be salt in the blandness. But here's what I'm saying. If we would take the time to evaluate society's values, we might find some points of connection. You see, our society no longer values morality or religion or pastors or churches, not like it used to. Our society values these types of concepts. Fairness, inequality, respect, kindness, compassion, empathy. This is the language you hear from people in our society. These are Christian values. And yet we've allowed the ungodly people in our society to hijack them from us and to use them as weapons against us. We should not be afraid of these values. When people talk about fairness and equality and respect and kindness and compassion and empathy, even if they are talking with regard to people that engage in ungodly behavior, we should steer the conversation to Christ. Jesus demonstrated all of these values, and so should we. I'm not saying that every time these values are used to to justify ungodly behavior, it's okay, because it's not. What I'm saying is this. If we allow the world to adopt these values as a point of contrast to us, they will forever label us as unfair, unequal, disrespectful, unkind, uncompassionate, and unempathetic. That's what the world says about us right now. And it's because we have said to the world, okay, you can have those values. And we'll just walk away from them. No, we're not walking away from those values. Those are ours. They belong to Christ. Those values are ours. And we must live according to them. But all of the labels that the world wants to use against us, because we take a stand against sin, well, those labels will stick if we don't also start speaking this language. This is the language that will make the world take notice these days. We must always proclaim the two messages of Romans chapter 1. Number one, God is holy and sin will be punished. And number two, God is love and seeks to forgive people for their sin. One reason 
that we proclaim God's holiness while simultaneously proclaiming God's love is because we don't want people to experience the last part of verse 27. It says, they are receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Homosexual behavior is a rejection of God's intended relationship between a man and a woman. And as such, it carries its own destructive penalty. You see, improper sexual behavior of any kind has always carried with it the potential to harm one's own body with sexually transmitted diseases. And as the Center for Disease Control reports, this is disproportionately true of homosexual behavior. The diseases are far greater. But if we understand that God has established an order to all things, even sexuality, and that His order is best for us, and if we will wisely choose His ways instead of our own, then we will benefit, and He will receive glory. Perhaps someone is here today and you're ready to turn away from the kind of behavior that brings dishonor to your own life. You're tired of feeling ashamed for your actions. You're ready to experience God's forgiveness and God's grace. And if this is you, you can respond in one of two ways. Number one, on the back of that connection card, you can indicate your desire to follow Christ. and Just turn that connection card into our ushers when they take up the offering. Secondly, in just a moment, we'll sing an invitation song. And you can step forward during the invitation song that we sing. And by joining me at the front, you'll be saying that you're ready now, today, to follow Christ. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, preacher. You know, if I come to the front after you preach a sermon about homosexuality, everyone's going to think I'm homosexual. First of all, no one knows about your past. Secondly, no one cares. No one cares. Okay? Every single one of us here has lived long enough that there are things in our past that we wish we had done differently. Every one of us, myself included. You're no different than any, of, any other one of us here. The only thing we want to do is help you follow Christ. Now, for those of us, the majority of us who are listening to this message, who are already followers of Christ, I would ask you to consider making the following commitments in your heart. Number one, Please do not be disrespectful to anyone or take shots at anyone, even if they're living an unchristian lifestyle. Okay? Uh, the time of poking fun at homosexuals or poking fun at people that are somehow otherwise uh, aberrant in their behavior or the way they look or whatever, that, that time has passed us. We don't, need, we don't need to do that. Okay? So don't be disrespectful. Secondly, Judge yourself before judging others. Calling sin a sin begins with calling yourself a sin. Okay. Next, I'm going to ask that you show God's love and God's grace to everyone. Everyone. Remember, you are a recipient of God's grace and God's love and God's forgiveness. The Bible says to give away what you freely receive. God freely gave you His grace, His love, His forgiveness. Give it away for free. 
Finally, I want you to consider this statement. Acceptance is not the same as endorsement. Acceptance is not the same as endorsement. You can accept people, even people living an ungodly lifestyle. You can accept them because they are also the bearers of God's image. They are people for whom Christ has died. And you can accept them without excusing their behavior. You can accept them without endorsing their behavior. I will not ask for a show of hands. But I wonder, in our extended families, how many of us might have somebody that is a homosexual or struggles with homosexuality. There's someone in my extended family like that. He divorced my sister. Destroyed their marriage. I wasn't happy about it because he hurt my sister. When their daughter got married, he was there. Came to the wedding, as he should. That's his own daughter. And as soon as he saw me, he came right up to me, gave me a big hug. He and I look very, very different. And I gave him a big hug back. I did did not use that as a time to scold him or to hurt him back or anything like that. Just not necessary for that. You can accept people without excusing their behavior. And I'll say this. If you ever want to keep an audience with someone who struggles with homosexuality, you'd better accept them. If you ever want to reach them for Christ, you'd better accept them. I'm not saying you endorse their behavior. I'm just saying you treat them with respect. You treat them with love. You be kind. You do what Jesus did with sinners. He loved them. He ate with them. Hung out with them. He pointed them to himself. That's what we're called to.